All I want is to get from where I am to where I want to be. It's never easy. It seems like there's always an obstacle or a detour or a dead end. God, just show me where to go. That's what I want. Welcome to Go Church. Really good to have you with us today, whether at one of our campuses or you're watching this message online. We are in the second week of a series called That's What I Want. Because no matter if you're in your 20s and 30s and you're starting your career and you're finding a place to live and deciding on how many kids to have, or if you're in your 60s and 70s and you're planning out retirement and trying to finish strong, there are certain things in life that we all want. Last weekend's message was titled Relationships That Flourish. We had a guest speaker named Greg Speck, and if you missed last weekend for some reason, it was one of the best messages that I've ever heard. I can't encourage you enough. Go online, watch last weekend's message. This weekend's message is titled, To Do Something Significant With My Life. Everybody wants that. No one wants to waste their life. Each one of us wants to do something significant with our years on earth, which leads to the question I want to ask you today, what makes up a great life? What are the qualities that you think define greatness? Because we live in a culture that tends to define greatness by the three Fs, fame, fortune, and followers. In other words, if you were to ask an average Joe on the street to describe a person who's living a great life, you would probably hear the name of an entertainer, so sports, music, acting, or you'd hear a politician. In fact, recently, as I was preparing for this article, I did a Google search on greatest people. And the third article that came up was most famous people. Apparently, even Google equates greatness with fame. In this article, there was 100 people listed. Only seven of them were non-entertainers. Oprah, Steve Jobs, and Bill Gates headlined that group. The most famous person in the world today, at least according to this list, Michael Jackson, that surprised me a little bit. Number two was Lady Gaga, great crazy world we live in. How about Instagram followers? Big news, this past March, Selena Gomez took over the top spot. She now has more Instagram followers than anyone else. If you're over the age of 50, you don't know who that is and you don't even care, but for other people, that's kind of a big deal. She passed up Taylor Swift Kim Kardashian, and her ex-boyfriend, which must have felt kind of good, Justin Bieber. But my point is, this is how our culture defines greatness. It's the three Fs, fame, fortune, and followers. The problem with that is it leaves about 99% of us out. If greatness is defined by the three Fs, then most of us are average or below average with little hope of ever doing something significant with our life. Now, you might be listening to all this and you might be thinking, yeah, but I don't define greatness by the three Fs. I define greatness by changing the world. 
Everyone wants to change the world these days. Have you noticed this? Every multi-level marketing business is now based on changing the world. Join us, we're changing the world. In fact, I was recently reading a business book and it talked about how many businesses are starting to incorporate this idea into their mission statement. So for example, the credit union Affinity Plus, their mission statement is changing the world one person at a time. REI says the same thing. So is that it? Is greatness defined by what you do for a living? Because what if you're a plumber? Do you have to pump yourself up in the morning and go, I'm changing the world one plugged toilet at a time? No, for those of you who are plumbers, thankfully you do not have to do that. Because Jesus says that greatness isn't defined by the three F's, and it's not defined by what you do for a living. Instead, Jesus gives us a whole new greatness gauge. Recently, my 2001 Toyota Highlander broke down, and so I had to borrow my dad's car for a couple days while it was getting fixed. And my dad's Honda CRV has a gauge on it that my older model doesn't have. It's a miles per gallon gauge. Some of you have probably had this for years, but I was fascinated to watch these bars go up or down based upon how many miles per gallon I was currently getting. So if I was out on the freeway and I took my foot off the accelerator, it would shoot up to like 60 miles per gallon. But if I accelerated out of a stop sign, it was down around five or 10. And I don't know why, but I became obsessed with this gauge. It changed my life. Normally, I'm kind of a fast driver. My definition of driving greatness is to try to get around as many people as I possibly can. That's why I don't have an EBC sticker on my car. I don't want to bring shame on the name of Jesus Christ because I'm cutting everyone off as I try to get around them. But this gauge changed all of that. I started to accelerate slowly. I would cruise into stop signs. I would drive a comfortable 60 or 65 on the freeway. My dad does have an EBC sticker on his car, so all this was a good thing. When my dad gave me the car, he was averaging 23.2 miles per gallon. When I gave him the car back just two days later, he was averaging 25.5 miles per gallon. Talk about doing something significant with your life. I felt really good about that. But here's my point. That gauge changed my definition of driving greatness. It used to be about getting around people, and then it became about miles per gallon. In the same way, Jesus is going to change our definition of greatness. He's going to give us a whole new parameter of success. He's going to give us a whole new greatness gauge. Now, before I read to you what Jesus has to say about greatness, I want to point out that Jesus never rebukes our desire for greatness. Do you want to be great? You should. Do you want to excel at your work? You should. Some people need to aspire to do more great things. But don't aspire to it in the way that the world does. Because you don't want to get to the end of your life and realize, you know what, I was pretty hot stuff in the world's eyes, but it was all of little to no value in God's eyes. You don't want to spend 80 years climbing up the world's ladder only to find out that you're on the bottom rung of God's for all of eternity. And that may sound dramatic for some of you, but that's how radical Jesus' teaching is here. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 18. 
This is where we'll pick it up. It says, about that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked, which of us is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, right away, you can see that this desire to be great is not a new concept. Humans are humans. In the first century or in the 21st century, we all want to be great. And so the disciples, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciple Peter is probably going, it's got to be me. I mean, I walked on water for crying out loud. If I had taken a selfie video walking on water, that thing would have gone viral in seconds. John is probably thinking, it's me. I mean, I'm the disciple it says that Jesus loved the most. And then the disciple Bartholomew is like, yeah, it's not me. My one claim to fame is I'm going to be the one disciple no one will be able to remember when they're playing Bible trivia. Right? Like if you ever played Bible trivia, you start going, Peter, James, John. At some point you give out and you go, I give up. Who am I missing? And they're like, Bartholomew. You're like, I've never even heard of that guy. Bob was here last night at the four o'clock service and he's like, I don't even know how to spell his name. I've never even heard of him. That's Bartholomew's claim to fame. But my point is all the disciples are hoping to be the greatest. Even their parents get in on the action. Look at what it says just a few chapters later. It says, Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? Jesus asked. She replied, In your kingdom, will you let my two sons sit in the places of honor next to you, one at your right and the other at your left? This is the equivalent of a parent who approaches the varsity high school coach to complain about playing time for their kid. In that culture, seating at the dinner table was all about rank and status. To sit at the left or the right of the host meant that you were the most important person in the room. In other words, you can see that even in the first century, they were operating by the same gauges of greatness that we operate with today. It's about rank and status, fame and fortune, followers and friends. But Jesus is about to turn all of that upside down. Jesus is essentially going to say this. Great people do great things. Now that may sound like kind of a simple concept to you, but oftentimes when we talk about greatness, we wrap it around what we do for a living or what we're passionate about. And the focus is on what we do. More and more, I'm wondering if that's misplaced. Nothing wrong with goals and ambitions and doing something you're passionate about. But what if the focus was on the kind of person you are? Because great people do great things. It's a natural byproduct. At least that's the direction that Jesus seems to go. In fact, before I give you the two gauges of greatness that Jesus gives, I want to ask you this question. What are the two qualities that you think make up a great person's life? When your life is all said and done and people look back and they say, she was so or he was such a, what are the two qualities that you would like to be known for? What are the two qualities that you think make up a great person's life? I want you to think of those in your head and then we're going to compare them with what Jesus says. Here's the first gauge of greatness that Jesus gives us. Humility. How many of you had that one in your top two? I mean, I'm not sure I would have had it in my top two if I didn't know this next verse. 
Because look at what Jesus says to the disciples right after they ask him, which one of us is going to be the greatest? Jesus says this. It says, Jesus called a small child over to him, and he put the child among them. Then he said, I assure you, unless you turn from your sins and become as little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples asked Jesus, hey, which one of us is the greatest? And Jesus sees this little kid standing nearby. And so he calls the kid over to him, he puts his arm around him, and he says, if you want to be great, you need to become like this little kid. Which would have shocked Jesus' audience, because in that culture, kids were not as highly valued as they are today. Jesus' disciples would have been going, why would I want to become like a little kid? Jesus gives two reasons. The first that he said was that you need to turn from your sins. Does that mean that a non-believer cannot live a great life? Sort of. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is where you might be today. Maybe you have fame. Maybe you have fortune or followers. You might have talent or success in the world's eyes. You might even have a form of religion in your life. But if you have never had a moment where you've turned from your sins and you've put your faith in Christ, I just need to tell you that none of those other things are going to last. Fame, fortune, followers, you're not taking them with you when you die. But a relationship with Jesus Christ, it never ends. It's real, it's personal, it's eternal. And the first step to that relationship is when you acknowledge your sins and you put your faith in him. But then notice what Jesus says next. He said this, he said, you need to become as humble as this little child. It's interesting to think that we have no idea maybe who the greatest person on planet earth is today. One thing is for sure, they're humble. Now the word humility is related to the word humiliation. And I get humbled like that all the time. For example, I mentioned earlier that my son, or my, dad, my car broke down. I had to borrow my dad's car for a few days. Well, after my son Micah's baseball game, we were walking back to our car, and Micah walked right past my dad's car. I said, Micah, this is our car. He's like, oh yeah, I forgot. And then for reasons unbeknownst to me, he turned to a complete stranger, and he goes, my dad's car broke down. It's old. He had to borrow his dad's car. And the stranger was like, you know, that happens sometimes. And so we got in the car, and I was a little bit embarrassed. I was like, Michael, why did you say that to him? He's like, well, I didn't want him to think we were stealing the car. <laughs> I said, I'm pretty sure most thieves aren't walking back to the car after their kid's baseball game holding the keys in their hand. But whatever, I've learned those things can be actually good for me. But when Jesus says, be humble... He doesn't mean that. He's not talking about these humiliating moments that we can all kind of laugh about. It's much deeper than that. C.S. Lewis might have had the best definition of humility when he said this. He said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not walking around with your head down low going, oh, I'm not very good at stuff. 
It's not even that aw shucks response that we give when other people say that we're good at something. So when someone goes, hey, you're really good at that. Oh, no, I'm not. You know, it's okay. Well, thanks anyway. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. True humility is thinking about yourself less. But that's really hard to do in our selfie-centered culture. I was sitting around the lunch table recently with some of our creative team staff members, and they introduced me to Snapchat filters. I don't know if you've seen these or not. If you're not familiar with Snapchat, it's an app for your phone where you can take pictures and then send them to your friends. But they've had these filters where you can alter how you look or kind of give yourself a funny face. Let me show you a couple examples of this. We actually have a phone right here. We might be making history right now. I don't know of any other church that's done this. But here... So you can add these weird filters to your face as you're talking. I'll show you another one here. I'm not even sure what to call this one. I'm gonna skip this one because that's weird. This is like the junior high me, you know, with graces. So you kind of see these weird filters that you can put on your face. Now, I just have to say, don't we live in a weird world? I mean, the strange things that people come up with. 15 years ago, the word selfie didn't even exist. We didn't even know what that word was. Although I did find this picture of a woman in the year 1900. And if you can see here, she's taking a photo of herself in the mirror. This has got to be the first ever selfie. This woman was way ahead of her time. Now, if I was going to critique her, I would say, you know, you need to get your hips out a little bit more, get some duck lips going or something like that. But otherwise, she was really ahead of it. Now, my point is, we live in a selfie-centered culture. Let me try to prove this to you. When you get a family picture back, who is the first person that you look at? Well, it's you, right? I hope I'm not the only one who does this. <laughs> but when I get a family picture back, I don't really care if my wife's looking the other way. I don't really care if my kids are picking their nose. If I look good, I'm like, we nailed it. Well done, everybody. And that's kind of a harmless example, but it shows how self-focused it is and how natural it is for us to be self-focused. And it's into that world that Jesus says, be humble. Think about yourself less. I love how Philippians chapter 2 says this. Paul writes, don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. So much of our selfie culture is living to make a good impression on other people. And some of that's natural. Like, I want to make a good impression. I don't want to make a bad impression. But notice the nuance here. He says, don't live to make a good impression on others. If you're waking up in the morning and you're thinking, oh, I hope they liked me. And I'm really worried that they took that the wrong way. And I hope I made a good impression. I hope they think I'm good at those things. If you're living to make a good impression... That's a dangerous place to be. He says, don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they are doing. Here's what I love about this verse. 
It gets at the how. I've been in church before, and I'll hear people say, well, be humble. And I'm always left thinking, yeah, but how do I do that? I mean, you can't just wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'm being humble. Look at me, I'm being humble. So how do you actually do this? Well, the verse tells us. He says, don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they are doing. In other words, humility is thinking about yourself less and it's thinking about other people more. Let me give you a couple practical ideas on how to do this. First, ask questions. I can't tell you how many times I'm in a social setting and I'll ask a person a question and another question and another question and after about 10 questions, I'm going, I don't have any more questions to ask you. Why don't you ask somebody a question here and express an interest in their life? Questions are a great way to start thinking about another person. Second, get outside of yourself. Too often we wake up in the morning, we go, you know, I'm not feeling very good today. I'm not doing very well today. I'm not very happy today. Get outside of yourself. How can you bring joy to another person's life? How can you be generous towards them? And then finally, pray for humility. Several years ago, I began to pray, Lord, humble me. And then I began to pray, Lord, teach me how to humble myself so that you don't have to humble me. But you begin to pray, Lord, humble me. Now, you might be listening to all this and you might be thinking, "Mm, yeah, okay, because we're in church, I'll agree with you, right? Like if you're in church and someone's talking about humility, you're going, yeah, oh yeah, that, that sounds, yes, great, humility. But let's just be real with one another for a moment. Most people outside of church aren't valuing humility all that much. And you might even be thinking to yourself, you know, in the real world, I see why you would pursue recognition, I mean, I get a certain buzz when people recognize me for a job well done. And I can see why you would pursue money. That gives you leverage. That gives you power. But why would I say, you know, money's fine and recognition's great, but I'm really going to pursue humility in my life? Here's why. Because humility is where God works best. Pride is the one attribute that blocks you off from God's work in your life. It blocks you off from improvement. It blocks you off from change, from progress, from God working in your heart in a genuine way. And let's be honest, great people are improving. They're changing. They're progressing. They're allowing God to work in their life. That's why humility is the first gauge of greatness. The second gauge of greatness is this, servanthood. How many of us had servanthood in our top two? Again, it might seem odd, but the greatest people on planet Earth are the ones who are serving the most. Look at what Jesus says to the mother of James and John, right after she gets done asking if her sons can sit at the left and the right of Jesus. Jesus responds to her this way. He says this, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must become your slave. For even I, the Son of Man, came here not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus measured greatness in terms of service, not status. That's completely opposite from our society today. In fact, see if you would agree with this. 
Greatness is determined by how many people you serve, not how many people serve you. Greatness is not determined by how many people are serving you at your home, at your school, at your workplace. It's determined by how many people you're serving. So let me ask you, how many people have you served this week? In his great book, Not a Fan, author Kyle Eidelman tells a story about a friend of his. And this friend says that he knew that his wife loved him one day as he was walking down their hallway into the kitchen for dinner. He could see his wife pouring two cups of Pepsi. She took one liter of Pepsi out of the fridge that had been sitting in there for about three weeks. It was flat and it was stale. She poured that into one cup. She then opened a brand new liter of Pepsi and she poured the fresh, fizzy Pepsi into another cup. But this whole time, her back was turned to her husband. So she didn't realize that he was watching her. And so when he sat down for dinner, he wondered, who's she going to give the flat, stale Pepsi to? (laughs) He said when she put the flat, stale Pepsi down at her spot, he said he had never felt more loved. Now I got a kick out of that story because just a few weeks before I read it, my wife and I were having bowls of Rocky Road ice cream together, and there was one bowl that was freezer burned with lots of nuts, and there was another bowl that was fresh and had lots of marshmallows, which is my favorite part. And no kidding, I was walking into our living room, and I kept rehearsing in my mind, her bowl's in your left hand, your bowl's in your right. Her bowl's in your left hand, your bowl's in your right. Because I wanted the bowl with more marshmallows, and I had no problem sticking her with the other one. Pray for me. I'm an only child. Okay, I can't help it. But listen to what Jesus says again. He says, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. You want to be a leader in your house? Serve. You want to be a leader in your workplace? Serve. You want to be a leader at school? Serve. If you serve, the question is not if you'll be a leader. The only question is when. Too many people want leadership opportunities without leadership responsibilities. Friends, true leadership is not upfront accolades. It's not fame, fortune, and followers. True leadership is serving. So I want to introduce you to some leaders in our church, everyday examples of people who are leading and who are serving. This is Steve and Nicole Miller. Steve and Nicole have been in a small group with my wife and I. And both of them have held Bible studies in their neighborhood. Steve for the men, Nicole for the women. And they've seen several people come to Christ through these Bible studies. They've done a Dave Ramsey study with their neighbors to teach biblical principles of debt and giving. Steve travels a ton overseas. But even though he travels a lot, he still finds time to teach in our Elevate ministry here at Lionel Lakes. In fact, last weekend, he flew in from Europe on Friday. He was teaching our kids on Saturday. Nicole had a traumatic childhood, but she has used that as a platform to help other teenagers through a ministry here at church called The Landing, teenagers who are struggling with an addiction or a traumatic event in their life. This next couple is Sean and Kristen Meschke. They serve as hosts at our Woodbury campus, and they recently began to bring an 18-year-old that they had met at the Dorothy Day Center to church with them. And the only reason that they were at the Dorothy Day Center was because of this next girl, Anna Haruth. 
Anna was a 16-year-old sophomore who dreamed of being a great volleyball player. That was going to be her ticket to greatness. And then she tore her ACL. And as she was recovering, God began to give her a vision of another kind of great life. She went on a mission trip to Haiti. She began to serve as a host at our Woodbury campus. And her and her father began to regularly go down to the Dorothy Day Center in St. Paul to serve the homeless. They've now recruited about 30 other people to come with them and serve there. I want to show you one final story. I met this girl because she was babysitting the kids at our small group. And the first time that I met her, I was thinking, how old are you? I felt like I needed to ask her for advice. She was 15 years old. And here is a girl who's not waiting until she's 24 for God to use her. She's doing something significant right now. She's starting a small group Bible study in her house for the kids at her school. Take a look at the side screens. My name is Lisa Ryman. I'm 17 years old, and I'm going to be a senior at Moundsview High School this upcoming fall. Moundsview is a pretty typical school. I have about 500 people in my class, and we have some great teachers and staff. Like most schools, I think every student has kind of their own unique experience, academically and socially. When I was a sophomore, I felt like I wanted to do something significant for God in my high school, something that would make a real difference in people's lives. But I didn't know what. One day, I was watching a sermon, and it was about having your life make sense in light of eternity. Like, what can we do now that matters for forever? And I just kept hearing this idea of being the church every day. And in that moment, God made it clear, I should start a group. And so I got together five people that I knew loved Jesus, and we just started house group in my living room. The main purpose of the group was to have God be known in our school and to know the character of God and know Him personally and then share that with others. We meet every Friday with worship and Bible reading and prayer and just a lot of community building. We didn't really grow for the first six months of the group and that was definitely hard because you didn't really see any impact or anything that was happening. But then people just started coming and it was just this huge surge of people, and all of a sudden we went from five uh, to 10, and then 15, and then people just kept coming and coming and coming, and it was amazing to see the growth. And before we knew it, we had 30 people coming every week. I think the coolest part is to see the lives that have been transformed. There's people now who know God. There's people now who have hope. There's people now who, have a community and I could almost start crying just because these people are so amazing. I mean, we're going through this time of our life where we're trying to find our identity and God is our identity. And to have a group of people that are just running after God together, I think that that's what has really impacted people the most. I think when we become Christians, we're signing a blank contract and God's just searching for somebody to sign up and say, okay, God, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want in my school. Do whatever you want in my life. And he doesn't call the equipped, but he equips the people that he calls. And so I really can't do anything significant without God. Throughout this whole time, 
it wasn't me, you know, God was really there. He was the one leading this group. Looking back on these past couple years, I can't believe that such a simple thing of starting a group could have made such a big difference in our lives and our school. Yeah. Some people say Christianity in America is dying, and then you see stories like that of young people who are gathering together on their own to worship God and worship Christ. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in my school, God? Surely it's the starting quarterback, or the homecoming queen, or the homecoming king. Who's the greatest, Jesus? We all want to know. Jesus looks at us and he says, You want to be great? Be humble serve other people. Most of us probably didn't walk into church today knowing who Steve and Nicole were or Sean and Kristen or Anna or Lisa. They don't have fame or followers that I know of. They don't have a fortune. But one day I believe they will stand before Jesus Christ and they will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And don't we all want to hear those words? Friends, don't waste your life. If you're a high school student, any one of you can start a Bible study at your school and begin to pray for your friends and try to reach your school for Christ. Any one of you could do that. If you're a college student, any one of you could start a worship service. When I was a sophomore in college, a freshman came in and he started a Bible study, a worship service at our campus. It was in the late 90s. I'm told that thing is still going today, 300 kids gathering together to worship Jesus Christ on Wednesday nights. Any college student could do that. Any college student could get a part of a ministry at their college and try to reach their campus for Christ. Any adult could invite a neighbor or a friend to come to church with them. Bob mentioned a couple weeks ago that we're doing this thing called Five for Fall. Who are the five people that you are going to be inviting to church between now and through the fall? Any one of us could do that. Any one of us could reach out to a friend of ours and say, hey, let me send you this message from my church last weekend. It was on relationships that flourish. It was so good. And, you know, I, I know you, you're a great dad. You're a great wife. You want relationships that flourish. You're going to love this message. Any one of us could do that. Any one of us could begin to lead our kids towards Jesus Christ, read them the Bible, and make that a priority in our family. Any adult can do that. You can do something significant with your life. And not just significant, but eternally significant. See, as I put together this message, I thought, you know, we could just fire people up and talk about, oh, go do it. But what if we have the wrong target? The right target, Jesus says, is humility. It's serving. And so today, we are going to celebrate the most humble and servant-hearted event in human history. We're going to receive communion together. And so if you're at communion servers, I want to invite you down at this time to begin to pass out the elements. And if you're at a campus where it's at the end of your row, just go ahead and pass that down the aisle at this time. But I want to show you Philippians chapter 2. And I want you to notice the connection here between humility and serving. It says, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't just say, be humble, serve. He embodied that in his own life. He took on the very nature of a servant. 
He humbled himself even to the point of a criminal's death to pay the penalty for our sins. And so today, that's what we remember. We remember the humility and the service of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion, but the Bible does say you have to be a follower of Christ. So if you're not there in your spiritual journey, it's okay to let it pass. You don't have to take communion at the same time that everyone else does. In fact, I would encourage you just to spend a moment and to pray and to thank Jesus Christ for his humility and then to evaluate your own life. How humble are you these days? Is that an area of your life that God might want you to grow in? Are you thinking about other people or just yourself? And then how much have you been serving? That's the mark of a great life. How much have you been serving at home, at work, at your church? Evaluate your life a little bit. Check the greatness gauge. As all this is going on, the band's going to be playing behind us, and then they're going to stand us to sing one final song. Final song.